calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving god, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Good morning, everyone. This is Trevor Van Winkle, and you're listening to Homestead on the Corner. get started, I just want to make a quick apology for the short lapse in transmission. Things have been a little bit crazy in my personal and professional life lately, and so I just needed a little bit of extra time to get this lesson and the next story together. Hopefully, starting from now, we'll be back to a new episode every two weeks until the end of the season. So with that, sit back and enjoy Building the Story World. The year is 2020. The place... America. The situation? Desperate. World War III looms on the horizon. Runaway climate change has devastated the biosphere. A new, terrifying plague seems to mark the beginning of the end for the human race. And in all that chaos, one man must make a podcast about world building that isn't a boring list of technical jargon. Okay, okay, all joking aside, What I did there wasn't just recreating a trailer for a 1970s dystopian sci-fi movie, but demonstrating one of the most common types of world-building. Through selection and omission of details and choice of focus in our everyday lives, we all build our view of reality. Our world. This is our subjective reality, and it defines how we interact with and think about capital R reality. It determines how we do our work, how we interact with others, and how we plan for our futures and contextualize our pasts. To quote Qui-Gon Jinn, your focus determines your reality. Psychological phenomena like selection and confirmation biases show that two different people can experience the exact same series of events and come away with completely different views about what really happened. The same can be said of your story world. A lot of writers, especially those with literary ambitions and a preference for slice-of-life stories, claim that they write about the real world, but that's not strictly speaking true. Everyone writes with perspective and brings their beliefs about reality into their work, their worldview. A staunch atheist and a fervent evangelist might both believe they're writing about reality with a capital R, but both are engaged in the act of worldbuilding whenever they sit down to pen fiction. 
uncomfortable as the idea might make you, just think about it for a moment. In the realm of fiction writing, anything is possible. Literally anything can happen, and in anti-structural and absurdist stories, anything usually does. Characters and events that have no place in the consistent fictional world the author is building appear unexpectedly and disappear just as suddenly for comedic or philosophical effect. In sci-fi and fantasy, the laws of physics are suggestions at best, and are usually uprooted and turned on their heads for the sake of spectacle. And yes, even the most hard-edged, realist story creates its own rules and world by selecting an angle from which to view reality and limiting the range and scope of the story's reality. Worldbuilding is the act of creating a fictional reality that reflects the core concepts of story. A story world, if you will. When we talk about worldbuilding, we tend to focus exclusively on fantasy sci-fi, the genre that most explicitly and expansively creates new and different worlds. Involved, internally consistent, and deeply realized paracosmos are, in fact, the main convention of the genre. However, it is far from the only genre that makes use of worldbuilding. A crime thriller typically, though not always, limits the boundaries of its story world very severely by choice of focus. The character web is typically focused on police, detectives, criminals, witnesses, and victims. The settings are typically limited to crime scenes, police offices, the detective's home, and the crime-ridden streets and alleys that connect them, or in the case of Murder on the Orient Express, almost entirely limiting the setting to one location that is simultaneously crime scene, police office, and the detective's home. Themes, values, and messages are similarly restricted and created by the story world. In a romantic comedy, the theme can usually be expressed as some variation of romantic love triumphs over blank because of blank. What romantic love, as a value, defeats and why it is defeated are defined by the story world. The needs and personalities of the protagonist or protagonists that draw them inevitably together. The force or forces of antagonism that love triumphs over and the powers available to both sides from their environment, character webs, and or social status in the story world. That's not to say worldbuilding is a limiting, anti-creative force, nor is it something artificial you place over your story at the beginning and slavishly follow. Rather, it is an organic part of your central story, arising from the same source as characters and plot. In fact, it is closer at heart to story than the other two elements of the triangulum. Story world is essentially the sum of the reality created by your idea, shaped by the theme arising from that idea, and the overall aesthetic and emotional impression you want to leave on your reader or audience. The reason most of us see world building as a rigid and inflexible process is because we most associate it with fantasy sci-fi, specifically with Tolkien's Middle Earth, one of the most beautiful, complete, and compelling constructed worlds ever put on page or screen. And while we're on the subject, I wanted to say a quick thank you to Christopher Tolkien for all he did to preserve and further his father's incredible vision. May you find the white shores and far green country under that swift sunrise. Now, if we're looking for a model for thorough, thoughtful world building, there's certainly no better example than Tolkien's Legendarium. 
However, looking at his work can be somewhat disheartening for new writers. Since we only see the end results of the decades J.R.R. Tolkien put into building Middle-earth, we tend to believe that we have to construct our own story worlds to the same level of granular detail, imitating his detailed language trees and branching dialects of Elvish ourselves, or else risk the label of fraud or hack. Now, listen in. I'm going to tell you a little secret. Tolkien was the exception. Exceptionally brilliant and so singularly focused on language that he, in his spare time between teaching classes at Oxford, divides an imaginary language family going back hundreds of thousands of years, and then just made up a story to go along with it. He didn't even know what Bilbo's ring really was when he wrote The Hobbit, or where the Lord of the Rings was really going until the Council of Elrond, which is why the first half of Fellowship of the Ring feels like a scattered volume two of The Hobbit. Tolkien, first and foremost, followed his passions, History, language, and myth. And most of us don't share the same enthusiasm for those subjects. Some of us may be fascinated by crime and psychology, and thus tend towards thrillers. Some of us may be fascinated by the psychology of love, sex, and romance, and thus tend towards rom-coms. I'm personally fascinated by astronomy, mythology, history, and psychology, and thus the story worlds I create tend to gravitate towards one or more of those points. John Grisham builds his story worlds around laws, legal conundrums, and the courts because he's a lawyer. Clive Custler writes books about archaeology, treasure hunting, and nautical adventures because he's an underwater explorer. Michael Crichton wrote books about the dangers of technology and biology because of his scholarly interests in science and anthropology. All three of these authors, and many more besides, wrote and found success primarily in one genre because of their personal interests, which allowed them to fill their story worlds with details of a very specific kind. The point I'm trying to make is that your stories, and thus your story worlds, will arise from your own experiences, tastes, and interests. And you shouldn't force yourself to spend years studying and crafting fictional languages and histories just because you think that's what real authors do. Rather, find the details in your story world that most need research and development to enrich your narrative. If you're truly following your own passions, these should line up quite nicely with the subjects you already know and are interested in learning more about. Okay, you say. I get it. Research what I'm passionate about. Got it. So do I do that before or after I start writing? Now I wish there was one right answer to that. But like so many things in writing, there isn't. It varies author to author, work to work. For most of my stories, I do start with research. Reading up on mythological structure and psychology for Return to the Echo Wood, and researching the sparse but fascinating historical details of Anne Bonny's life for Siren's Gold. Oftentimes, the research process helps reshape the construction of my narratives, or even sparks the beginning of an entirely different story. Disquiet began as a simple horror story set in an isolated cabin in the middle of a generic wood, then evolved into a more action-oriented ghost story when I learned the history of America's only abandoned national monument and found myself fascinated by that idea. But then, for some stories, research comes during and after writing only. In the finished first draft, the story world might seem flat or unrealistic, and so you begin to do research where you feel it's lacking. 
My most recent novel, which I'm currently editing, takes place in a largely invented location on the Oregon coast, and features many creatures and monsters out of Scottish and Orkney mythology and folklore. To begin with, I researched as much as I could about that tradition, drew on my own experiences of visiting the Pacific coast as a child, and just began to write. However, once the first draft was done, I knew I needed to do more research, a state I'm honestly still in. I read as much as I could about Scottish history and society, all the way back to the first appearances of the Celtic people in Roman histories. I researched the psychology of the characters in the story, learning more about how they would likely think and act. And eventually, I took a week-long trip in Oregon to set my feet in the sand and take in as much sensory, geographical, and social detail as I could from the location of my fictional town and the surrounding communities. In a similar but more specific vein, when I started writing Siren's Gold, I used idioms and euphemisms that, to me, seem universal. Because they came so naturally to my 21st century brain, they seemed like they'd always been part of the English language. However, when I started researching these sayings, and even specific words, I began to discover that most of them didn't exist in 1721. I couldn't have the surgeon tell Barrett he'd be right as rain. That expression was first recorded in 1894. The Morgan didn't appear off the port bow of the Tiger, but the Larboard, because port wasn't used on ships until 1844, when the Royal Navy realized how easy it was to mistake Larboard and Starboard when yelling orders in the middle of a storm. In the book Creating Unforgettable Characters by Linda Seeger, Victoria Westermark recommends reading historical newspapers, letters, and diaries to get character voices right in period pieces. At the very least, when writing anything definitively set in a particular time and place, I'd recommend reading and researching as much as you can to find the pattern, sound, and tone of speech at the time as best you can. Not only will it give your work a deeper sense of historical and social realism, it will give all your characters a unique and memorable voice more often than not. It doesn't just have to be for period pieces either. Just think of the iconic regional dialect and linguistic personality the Coen brothers captured in Fargo, and the role that played in making that an instant classic. Just don't let it become a distraction for your reader or obscure your meaning. As Stephen King says, never use emolement when you mean tip. Research into time, place, and language are essential for stories set in real places, not just to avoid being called out by people who know the setting better than you do, because there will always be someone who knows more than you, but to invest your narrative with a greater depth of imagery and meaning. In many cases, research can be a great way to break through writer's block, inspiring you to find new elements to enrich your characters and plot. Most writer's block, I've found, is not the result of failure of imagination, but of not knowing where to point it next. The volcanic forge of insight within every crater never runs dry, but sometimes it doesn't have a path to the surface. Research gives your imagination both a direction to go and fuel to burn brighter than before. But, and this is a big but, what if you are doing that traditional high fantasy style of world building? What if your story takes place either partially or entirely in an imaginary world? If so, great. You have more research to do than anyone else. Writing a story world based on capital R reality comes with the added benefit that other people have access to it, including people who are far better scholars and researchers than most writers could ever dream of being. Your imaginary world? Well, the problem's in the name. It's a world that only exists in your imagination, which means you have to do all your own research and do it all within your own imagination. Imaginative research, as defined by Robert McKee in his book Story, is to sketch how your characters shop, make love, pray, scenes that may or may not find their way into your story, 
but draw you into your imagined world until it feels like deja vu. It's the same kind of work you do when researching a historical period or real event, finding details of setting, technology, language, culture, social structure, and background that create a deeper sense of meaning and reality for your characters and plot. The only difference is that you, as the author, have to find these details within, rather than outside. Approaches to this problem vary, but usually involve some mixture of pre- and post-first draft research, the same as any other work of fiction. C.S. Lewis, for example, started with the image of a fawn, a lamppost, and a snowy wood, then slowly expanded his story world as the chronicles necessitated. His contemporary Tolkien did most of his work up front, as already mentioned, but only came up with the rings of power and their grand significance in the world of Middle-earth after he finished The Hobbit. Many contemporary authors tried to out-Tolkien Tolkien in their fantasy, extensively world-building and plotting long before their first book is published to ensure they don't have to make any embarrassing retcons. But I'm sure that fine details still change between drafts as imaginative research continues to influence the telling. The amount of imaginative research you want to do before you begin is entirely decided by the requirements of your story and your own tastes. If your work is a sprawling epic whose action is determined by long, storied histories, old rivalries, and a complex political system, such as Game of Thrones, The Witcher, or Dune, you will need to do a great deal of worldbuilding before you can get your head around the plot and characters. If it's a more simplified, small-scale, or symbolic or allegorical world, such as Narnia, Star Wars, or a series of unfortunate events, you still need to do your research, but just enough to construct compelling, understandable motivations for character actions and events within the plot. This is the main point of world building, to provide and maintain meaning and drive for action within the story world. If we don't understand the value system created by the story world, or worse, it's not present, then all the complex plotting, conflicted characters, and twisting machinations of the villain will not make consuming the narrative a meaningful experience. For example, the world of Taxi Driver is carefully constructed around, well, a taxi driver, Travis Bickle. His world is the 1970s New York night, a world of muggers, prostitutes, and porn theaters. In other words, a paralyzing world of violence and commercialized sexuality that makes everything seem meaningless and can easily push a vulnerable person over the edge. By understanding the nihilistic world of the story, the actions of Travis and his slow descent into madness create meaning. The woes of modernity can push even the everyman to violent extremes. This is further reinforced by how little we actually know about Travis's backstory. Meaning and change in the film come almost entirely from the relationship between a blank slate and a story world. Transport the same character into a different setting, a warm and friendly world of pastoral nostalgia, or the glittering, optimistic city that is Superman's metropolis, and Pickle's actions lose meaning. The plot becomes nonsensical, and the film falls flat. By carefully, intentionally, and effectively layering your story world with just enough detail to give character and plot actions meaning, you not only create an interesting and compelling world for your readers to visit, but bring everything else in the narrative into sharper focus. Just make sure that all elements of worldbuilding are presented as naturally as possible into the narrative. In other words, dramatize them. Make them part of the narrative, revealing them through character action or developing them organically as elements of the plot. Show don't tell. In 90% of the films, books, or TV shows that open with a block of explanatory text or an on-the-nose narration explaining the world, it's unnecessary. 
The reader will not be lost if you naturally weave the information into the plot, or, in some cases, if you leave the backstory almost entirely to the reader's imagination. In the film Snowpiercer, we don't need to know that an attempt to mitigate global warming froze the world over. We see the modern world frozen over in the first shot of the film, and the grimy interior and dystopian conditions of Snowpiercer's back carriages make it abundantly clear that these are the survivors of some apocalypse. The how and why that apocalypse occurred are not really relevant to the meaning of the film. The narrative is entirely concerned with a microcosm of society and survival, vividly shown and brutally dramatized by writer-director Bong Joon-ho. Actually, better make that Academy Award-winning writer-director Bong Joon-ho, actually. This idea, leaving elements of the backstory to audience imagination, is also a powerful move to deploy when worldbuilding. The Man With No Name trilogy, namely A Fistful of Dollars, For A Few Dollars More, and The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, explicitly featured a main character with no explicit backstory. We never learn his real name. He was referred to by a constantly shifting array of nicknames, and we have no idea where he came from. But his motivations, personality, and skills are clearly demonstrated and dramatized by his actions within all three stories. If you've seen these films, then you'll realize just how much of their appeal comes from the enigma at the heart of the trilogy, and how big a mistake it would have been to give Eastwood's character an explicit backstory. Yet this is exactly what the 1975 TV release of A Fistful of Dollars did, adding a prologue where the man with no name is hired to clean up the town in exchange for a pardon. Now this is an example of world building that actually removes meaning from the story. In the original cut, Joe, as he's called, is a figure of mystery, and that unpredictability creates meaning for his character. He's a wild card, full of hidden depths that make it impossible to guess what he'll really do next. Yet that mystery delights and surprises the audience continuously, and allows them to imagine a whole host of possible interpretations. Sergio Leone probably had his own backstory in mind when he crafted the world of the story, but by keeping it all off-screen, he created not only one of cinema's most memorable characters, but some of its most enduring stories. Keep in mind, however, the law of diminishing returns. One mysterious character creates intrigue and interest. Having all your characters as unknowns makes the story frustrating, impenetrable, and ultimately, just dull. The balance between what you hide and what you reveal will depend on the mechanics of your specific story. Fantasy and sci-fi generally demand a high level of specificity in order for character actions to have meaning, not only within the story world, but to the reader, first and foremost. Domestic dramas can typically leave much of the detail in the background, out of focus. We can all understand or imagine what it would be like to be in such and such a family situation, going through such and such a problem, and what certain actions by certain people would signify. As always, Listen to your story and find out where it should land along that spectrum. Respect the intelligence of your audience and don't hand-feed them information out of fear that they won't understand. But don't blow past the details necessary for them to create meaning either. Give them the tools they need to build your world in their imagination and gently guide them as they put it together. And I have one final bit of advice on world building that I personally consider the most important. Don't build worlds all on one level. Take a good long look at your life, in particular the week just passed. How did you spend it? What variety of activities did you engage in? Most likely, you spent the largest chunk of your hours working a paid job. And what did that entail? Physical labor? Customer service? Office politics? How many levels did your day job require you to engage on? Professional? Social? 
intellectual, political? And what about the hours you weren't working? How did you fill those? With hobbies and pastimes? A side hustle? Time with friends and family? Entertainment and media? Romantic pursuits? Did you attend a place of worship or engage with the spiritual in some other way? Did you exercise? Go shopping? Volunteer? And what about those quiet moments when you were finally by yourself? What ran through your head? Gratitude? Dissatisfaction? Anxieties about the future or a longing for the past? The point is that, even when things seem relatively simple or normal, our lives are complex, many-level things that involve several levels of professional, social, spiritual, emotional, intellectual, personal, romantic, and or historical contexts. In other words, real life is a multi-level construct, and your story world should, in some way or another, reflect that complexity. Investigate and imagine what your characters' social, spiritual, and emotional lives are like, instead of just building their reality completely around their job, relationships, or philosophy. By layering these inner and outer complexities into the story world, you can create a sense of emotional realism and increased believability, empathy, and interest for the reader. So, should you create an entire fictional language for your story? If it increases the internal consistency and adds meaning, then yes. But if you're only doing it because that's what real writers do, or to prove how clever you are, then leave it out, or simplify it. Never forget which details are background and which are foreground. Place character, plot, and story first, then make sure their meaning is communicated in a compelling manner. Do enough research to write confidently and consistently about your world. Let research inspire creativity, and creativity direct your research. Once you've built a world that is real enough for your imagination to run around freely in, you will fall in love with your story again and again, as writing allows you to return to those old familiar places. Here's a quick question for you. How did you sleep last night? If your battle for a good night's sleep feels relentless, I have the answer. It's a podcast called Sleep Wave with meditations and hypnosis created to help you fall asleep. My relaxation techniques will help you feel calm and ready for sleep with soft music that will help you fall asleep in minutes. Most listeners never hear the end of an episode. So search Sleep Wave on your favorite podcast app and find out why over a million people have fallen asleep to my voice. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. 
and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to this somewhat belated episode of Homestead on the Corner. Today's world-building workshop was written and produced by Trevor Van Winkle, with music from the dynamic and enigmatic Lauren Baker. Since we do the lion's share of our research on the internet these days, why not take a quick break and check out Twitter and Instagram, where you can find me at Trevor underscore VW. Or you could even visit homesteadonthecorner.com for extra content, outtakes, and more info about the show. But if you enjoyed this lesson and want to help this show grow, then please consider supporting Homestead on the Corner on Patreon as a monthly donor. It makes a huge difference. Next episode, The Age of Heroes begins with a new story episode in the tradition of the original Superman radio serials. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss it, and please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really does help get this show out to more people. Well, that's about all for now. From the homestead in the corner, have a great day, and keep riding. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics, and sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot-button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.